0: welcome to the board game design lab podcast each week we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love and now here's your host gabe barrett
1: what's up my friends welcome to the board game design lab today we're talking about the making of this is a new uh, type of show that, that I'm hoping to do a lot more of where we, we take a game and we look at how it was made, the design choices that went into it, the different thoughts, the ideas, how the art came to be decided on, the mechanisms, all the different things that created a game or went into the process of its creation. Uh, I look forward to talking to a lot of different designers and getting their insight, their perspective on how a game was created, how it started, where the idea came from, how it changed through playtesting and prototyping and all that, and how we ended up with the version that, that you are playing on your table. And so today Today we're talking to Jamie Stegmar. Jamie, really appreciate you being back on the show.
0: Yeah, my pleasure. Happy to be here.
1: Yeah, absolutely. This is the uh, third time you're on the show. I'm, I'm just excited. And one of the main reasons I want to have you back, and this is the first one of these types of episodes I'm, I'm doing. Well, you were the first episode. You were the first one ever, and so I think it's kind of cool to have a little symmetry and have you be on. and Talk about Scythe, you know, the sixth-ranked game in the world right now on Board Game Geek. So congrats on that. That's an amazing accomplishment. Did you ever see yourself making a top ten game? You know, I feel like it just kind of comes out of nowhere sometimes.
0: It, it yeah, it continues to come out of nowhere. It, it, even though it's been there for a couple months now, yeah, yeah. it uh, it is exciting. It, overall, for me, I I just I'm excited that people are having fun playing one of my games. Yeah, and that it happens to add up to to enough to be in the top ten It's pretty incredible.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So huge congratulations on that. And it looks like it has no sign of slowing down. Are you already working on maybe some more expansions or anything?
0: We we are, yeah. Actually, there's there's one that's going out to blind playtesters today. Oh, very cool, man.
1: Well, you don't have to talk about that. And I'm just curious. I figured that was the case because people want more stuff. They want more factions. They want more mechs. They want more cool, interesting choices to make. So let's just jump right into to how this game came to be. Now, the first thing people talk about before they talk about the mechanics and all the gameplay and all that, they talk about the art. And you know that. The art is, is right there. I mean, from the cover, which is beautiful, to the rule book, to the cards, the board. I mean, art is just all over this game. Uh, I can't remember the guy's name that did your art, The, the kind of the famous artist. What's his name?
0: His name is Jakob Ruzal.
1: Where is he from?
0: He's from Poland.
1: Poland, okay. So yeah. he was already doing this kind of art, this kind of alternative World War One-ish time period with mechs and farmers and all this stuff. But mm-hmm. where did the where did the original idea for Scythe come from? Did you see the art first and go, "Oh, I could make a game around that," or did you already have a game and then you saw his art? Like, how did it how did it work out?
0: Yeah, this was this was unique in that it definitely was art first. Uh, Jakob has already. Um, he had made about 12, 10 to 12 illustrations in this world that he was conceiving, which was mostly about uh, a real war that happened between Poland and Russia in the 1920s. And uh, he had started to make, make the art for this, this alternate history world. And I discovered it on a website called Kotaku, where they feature a different uh, artist every week. And it just, it, and, you know, you've seen the art. It, it, it really is beautiful. Um, and it just hit me. And I was immediately, I was, I wanted to make a game in that world.
1: Gotcha. Now, did you contact him first or did you just go ahead and start working on a game?
0: No, I, I did. I, I contacted him right away and, and, and asked him if, if he would be interested in, in me developing a game in that world and him being part of that development as much as he wanted. Yeah. What was his reaction? Well, it surprised me because I, I've reached out. At that point, I had reached out to some other artists and some other um, people who had intellectual property that I wanted to create games in. I, I mean, I'm really. Whenever I see a world that really excites me, I, I usually contact that person to see if the board game rights are available. And so I expected the, for him to say no, but he was actually really excited about it, and he spoke English, which I didn't—I I wasn't sure if he would do because he—he he is Polish. He lives in Poland, but his his written English is excellent. Um, so yeah, he was—he was excited about the idea, and he just wanted to make sure though that that he. Uh, that he retained the rights to the world that I was going to take the whole thing away from him just the board game rights.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Now was he a gamer? Like was he playing any Portal? I think Portal games is, is out of Poland, right?
0: Portal is out of Poland, yeah. yeah. He's he's played a few board games. He's more into I think he's done a few RPGs, some miniatures games and uh video games. He doesn't play a lot of a lot of board games.
1: All right, so going into it you saw the art and you said, "Man, this would be a really cool world to create in." But then, what made you go? Okay, I want to make a Euro game that also has some war element, some resource management. Like, how did you get to the mechanics, or to the you know what really makes up the game?
0: Well, I really I, 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 I printed out a bunch of the art that was available, and I, I sat down and did a lot of brainstorming for for quite some time. This wasn't like a, a two night process. I think it took at least a month of me just sitting there with the art, writing down what. Um, Mechan like just trying to immerse myself in that world through the mechanisms. Um, as you said, there are farmers and mechs that are they're a big part of of that world. And so a lot of it was me trying to figure out okay, so the, the you know you, what's happening here? Who who are the characters in this world? How are how are they represented by the players? How are they interacting with these farmers? How are the mechs interacting with the characters and, and the and the farmers? So that that was a big part of it. And I'm always also influenced by the games that i'm playing at the time which can which can be good or bad but at the time i was playing dead of winter and dead of winter uh, has a lot of different characters in it and you're kind of connecting to their stories and using characters in different ways so at the time uh i was trying to do the same thing inside um in a completely different game format but i was trying to give every different character in the game a different uh, some different life a different story a different mechanism
1: yeah, absolutely, and I love what you've done with the asymmetry in the game because it goes beyond just oh, you've got power A and I have power B. No, right. it's it's that, but way more. You, you're you're good at this. I'm good at that. The way my clothes are, are totally different. The way my mechs look are totally. Everything is so different, where you can really get immersed in this game and say, yeah, these are totally different people groups coming together fighting over this territory, and it just right. so much helps in a th- uh, with the theme and in a game in a Euro game where a lot of times the theme is just kind of thrown together pasted on well not in scythe i mean you are you really kind of feel like oh i'm this giant guy with this uh, tiger or you know like whatever it is in in the game and and doing these cool things so how did you get to the idea of the board and the hexes and kind of wanting to have this big you know territorial kind of it's not area control but it kind of is um how'd you get to that was that from the beginning
0: uh, it wasn't quite from the beginning. I, I, I think Jakob and I talked pretty early on about, about there being, like, that the game is going to take place on a physical space and that there, there will be some sort of spatial interaction there. One of the things we had to discuss pretty early on is really what that space would look like and what, how many different factions would be on it. Because originally the art was just about Poland and Russia. And so we, we talked very early on about expanding that to some other factions as well. Um, we, did, we picked three more to add, and then we kind of said, you know, let's let's leave the potential to have a little bit more variability. Let's leave the potential for some expansions there. And that's where the, the two expansion factions came in. Yeah. So that was, figuring out those factions and how they spatially related to each other uh, was a big part of the, the early brainstorming.
1: Right, and it's such a great idea to leave those open places for the later expansions that you, you were probably – were you already working on? Like, did you already have those factions made when the game came out, or did you work on those later?
0: Yeah, they, they came later. Oh, okay. um, so much like we knew where they would be on the board, but other than that, um, I guess we knew their names. Yeah. But beyond that, I, I I spent so much time and mental energy just getting the the original factions right that that I didn't think about those new factions until after Scythe was kickstarted. Gotcha.
1: So many people they they create a game and then they cut parts out of it to do an right. expansion later, but that's not what you did. You 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 went in. Uh, that that the game that was on the table was the game that you initially envisioned, and things were added to it. so how did you balance the board you know to make it where it's you know it's still asymmetrical it's still very different uh but yeah. yet it's fair you know, how did you get that
0: it It took a number of iterations um and part of it was that throughout the design process, I was trying to blend the aesthetic of whatever the component I was working on. aesthetic and the look of it, because that was so important to to Jakob, and it was what had originally drawn me to the world, balancing that with um, the the asymmetry of the game. And so we went through a ton of maps that didn't look very natural, Um, like they were were almost too evenly divided up, and and I didn't like the way they looked, Jakob didn't like the way they looked, and so we just moved away from that, and for a while, uh, I think it was almost too different, like there was an island on the map at one point because um, uh, it looked cool, but it, it, it made the game more complicated than it, than it should have been. So we went through a lot with the map, and Jakob spent about a month illustrating the final map, which we, I, I actually I wanted him to get that done before we started blind playtesting it because um, I wanted players to actually experience the real map during the blind playtesting. And then after he had spent that month on it and after the blind playtesting, we went back and had to change certain elements of the map which was not very fun for him at all. Like I don't think any artist wants to spend so much time on something and finish it and be done with it, only to have to go back and actually change significant things again. Um,
1: yeah. well, let's stay on the map. You know, one cool thing about the game is the resources stay on the map. Yes. They don't yeah. move. You know, they don't go in front of you. They stay right there in the open, and so people can come take them and things like that. Yeah. Where did that idea come from?
0: So that that was a, just one of. I have like a long list of mechanisms that I that I'm excited about and that I write down, and then maybe someday I'll use them. And this was one of them. The idea, the original idea was, um, and I knew nothing about like the what would come around this game what would form around the game. But the idea was that at the beginning of a game, this imaginary hypothetical game, you would drop a bag of resources on the map, and that would form the original layout of all the different resources. Yeah. And then you choose your, where you go, and so that once I had that idea, I was like, you know, this is there. There aren't any games, and maybe there are now. Maybe, I just didn't know about them, but there aren't many games where this abstracted concept of controlling resources is actually represented spatially on the board. Usually you keep them off to the side on your player map or, or in your, your personal supply. And so I, I, I wanted that in a game where there, there is interaction like inside, I, I wanted that stuff to be on the board. And even though you don't, you don't actually interact with the resources all that much in the game, like you rarely go and steal someone else's resources There's always that threat, and you actually get to feel like, you know, I made this thing on this farm, and now I'm using it from that farm. I I wanted that, that tactile, that spatial representation of it.
1: You know, and like you say, it's not something that comes out in the game a lot. But right. just the threat of it, just to have yeah. it in the back yeah. of your mind that says, well, if I push out too far, I leave myself open. It just gives more choice. It makes things more interesting. Uh, and, it, and it gives an opportunity for that one guy in your group who just likes to take that, you know, opportunities. Well, he can go take your right. stuff. And he's not going right. to win with that, but he can do that and feel good about himself. Uh, so let's, let's kind of go back to the factions. Where do the ideas for the different factions come into place and then giving them animals and, and all those things and making it part of the mechanics, all that. How did that, those ideas come to be?
0: Well, so with the, the factions, um, you know, they started with Poland and Russia and I told Yakov where we discussed having three more and I kind of put it in, I, I learned throughout the process to, to talk about hy- hypothetical ideas like that and then put the ball in his court for a little bit mm-hmm. and let him figure out, where he wanted the world to go because it really is his world to develop and, and change. Um, and so they came from him. He, he, he picked the, the, you know, the colors and the, and the unique aspects of those factions. Um, at the time though, it was much more of a war game. And so even though in the original art, there was a bear that, that, that was a real bear in the, uh, in the Polish army at the time. Um, and so I, I love that idea, but I think that was part of what drew me into the art and what draws people into the art. And so at the time, the players who were going to be able to control bear units. Like you would, like one, the Polish player would have a bunch of different bears they put out on the board, and those bears do unique things. But we, as the game moved away from being a war game and more into what it is now, um, we wanted to give life to a specific character in the game, and that, that, that pair of a, a one human and one animal per faction. So rather than having a bunch of generic bears, we wanted you to have the story of that one specific character and be able to connect to that character. Gotcha.
1: Now, how was it working with an artist so closely? Because I'm assuming in most of your games oh. you don't, you're not asking all these questions and making decisions with the artist, right. right? So, how was it to have that other person on the team to kind of bounce ideas off of and, and come up with things?
0: I think with the wrong person it could have been terrible, mm. but with Jakob it, it was it was great um, because he would he would re- he replied quickly which is really helpful because usually you know I'm, I'm like in the middle of a brainstorm and I I'm, I'm trying to figure out the next step something's in my way and I need I need the thematic answer to it and so he would respond really quickly to that and give me his take and just his vision of the world was so it was specific but flexible like he he knew that things were going to change because we were trying to make a tabletop game version of this world and so he was very flexible with it but at the same time he he just had such a specific vision for this world, um, which was really helpful for me because I, I didn't have to spend my mental energy designing a world and a game. I just had to focus on the game part of it. Yeah. So he, he made it a lot of fun, really. It was a lot of fun to work with him on it.
1: Awesome. So one of the things I love, and this is a great mixture of art and mechanics, are the encounter cards. And yeah. I love that they don't have this big, long flavor text thing. It is, it is literally a picture of and three options, and each option is different. Each option has benefits or or maybe uh, some drawbacks, but I love that as a player, I can look at this card and the game's not telling me what happened or what's happening. I can kind of decide for myself, and, and either in my head or out loud, I can come up with this little story that goes along with these options. So where did the idea come from to not put flavor text? Because, I mean, that's just, that's just what you do. That's the general trope of, of board games. You know, If you want to make something more thematic, throw some flavor text in there. So where did the idea to, to not do that? Or actually, let's start with Encounter Cards in general, where that idea came from, and then kind of how you process that out.
0: Well, it kind of stems from what I was just saying about giving, letting characters, uh, letting people, the players, inhabit a character on the board. it, And paired with the idea that in, in Jakob's art, uh, it's like little slice of life snippets that are happening. Like they're little moments in this world that are happening. And I wanted to find a way to pull them into the game to let players experience those little moments, those those little events. And for a while, I considered events because a lot of games have random events that you draw and like you know this thing happened like this thing randomly happens and it just happens and you react to it whereas with the encounters it's it's usually it's an opportunity it's a scenario that you stumbled upon and it's an opportunity to get something out of it and the for the uh, the flavor text the the big thing I really the big thing that people have some people have asked for is for a label to say like to actually do exactly what you just said that you that you're a fan of that it didn't happen, which is a label saying this is what's happening here. Here are your choices, and really, um, I think it, the art speaks for itself. There, it, it, it is showing you that label. Like you don't you don't need the label to tell you because the art is telling you so much more right. than like an eight word label could tell you. But the takeaway that I did learn from that is in the first option on the card. Um, I tried to make it more descriptive. So like the original versions of of those options um, kind of assumed that you had seen the art. But a lot of people, when they read those encounter cards, they don't. Like the rules say show it to everybody else at the table. But sometimes when you get in the motion of the game, you don't do that. So you just read it, hopefully out loud, you read that first option. And so I tried to make that first option into the label that people were asking for.
1: Gotcha. So you did kind of weave it in a little bit. Uh, but, bit. in a but, in such a cool way, you know and learning about story and storytelling and writing, one of the main things you learn is show don't tell it's yes. always better yeah. to show than than it is to tell somebody, and I think that's what the art does in a really cool way. you know one of the cards I love is the guy he's got the the big old mech behind him, and he's fishing, he's on the oh, bank, yeah. and he's fishing, and like you can just project such a cool little story of this scenario that's so much better in my head than it would have been with an eight word, 10 word flavor text thing. Like, you know, it's just, it's just better that I have been shown this scenario than Oh, I was told a guy was on the, on the beach fishing and he had a big mech behind him. It's like, well, okay. You know, it's just better to show that. Absolutely. Um, But let's get into like the objective card. So in, in Scythe, you get two objectives, but you can Mm -hmm. only score one, which I think is brilliant because you can hold on to both of them the whole game until you, until you score one. Right. And so, Is that something that came out in the testing that really just showed it needed to be that way? Or or was that an idea from the beginning? How did that work out?
0: I I like to give players short-term goals and long-term goals. And so the objectives came from a long-term goal. But I really wanted to make it uh, optional. Like if you want to pursue this thing, you can. uh, But you don't have to. And so, like you said, you choose two and sometimes they might be in line with something that excites you about the game that you want to do in that game but sometimes it may not be and the the game is flexible there like there are other ways to get stars um which are kind of the, the end game trigger in the game one of the main ways you get points uh so i i that's that's kind of my design f- philosophy in general I, I love long-term goals but i don't want to ever force a player to do it yeah. i want them to have the freedom to explore the game in their own way, in their own creative way if they want to.
1: Right. And so many games, they give you they give you the same option at the beginning. They say, here's two cards. And then they say, choose one right now and discard yeah. the other one. Oh, okay. And so now I am pigeonholed in this strategy maybe. And what if it yeah. doesn't work out that way? Or worse yet, what if this is the first time I'm playing and I have no idea which one of these yeah. two cards I should choose? And so it just gives players so much more options. It makes it easier to get into the game. You don't feel like you're stuck. It's just a better way to do it. And so if you're designing a game right now and you've got these options at the beginning – be real careful about which ones you force on the players because it, it could really affect how they play, especially how they play the first time, which is so important that they have a at least a good experience, if not great, that first time to get them to come back. Because Lord knows there are a lot of games that they could be playing right now other than right. yours. And so you want to give them a great experience for that first one. So let's talk about the factory. And so it's right there in the middle of the game board. And it gives you really cool options if you get there. You don't have to go there. You know, you don't have to. But, you know, there are a lot of bonuses to doing it, but there's also risk and all that. So where did that idea come from? Was that in his art originally, Was or this this kind of big factory thing? Or is that just an idea you guys came up with?
0: That, that was something that we developed together. Because we kind of, as soon as we knew that we wanted a map, we needed to give players a reason to, um, to get out and explore the map. And not just stay in their own little pocket. And part of that were the encounters that are out there in the middle of the map. But but part of that was having a, a central point, um, and that became the factory. And Jakob was familiar with the idea of like King of the Hill at that point. I think he had played he played some video games that had that concept. And so we understood it right away, and he, he came up with the idea of the factory, um, of being a central point. At the time, though, we didn't know what the factory did. We just knew that it was a, something that was desirable that the players would want to get to. Um, and for a long time, it was... Uh, we, I, eventually I figured out the factory cards. Uh, I think that happened around the time that I figured out the player mats. That's when I figured out the, the, the factory cards. But I the, probably the last touch of it was making the factory worth three territories at the end of the game because we were finding that players would go to the factory and get a card and then they wouldn't care about it anymore. Mm-hmm. Even though in the story we had made this big deal about the factory being a, an important part of the, the game and the world. And so once we added the, that three territory out element of it, it gave players not just a reason to go there and get a card, but also go there and try to hold on to the territory or make a push for it at the end of the game.
1: Yeah, and there's so much to be said. If if you have a a part of your game that you want to be important, well, make it important. Like don't just yes. hope it's going to yeah. be important. Don't just put in the story that it's important. Give players right. incentive to want to make it important to them as well. There's yeah. a lot of wisdom in that. Well, you mentioned the player mat. Let's talk about that because that's one of the really one of the coolest parts of the game where you have this player mat, player board that has was it eight options there's yep. split up into four sections there's a top row and a bottom row and if mm-hmm. you take the top you can take the bottom but you don't have right. to anyway there's a lot of really cool things that go with that so how did that develop where did that idea come from you know what what kind of happened in that process to get it to where it is now
0: you know it was kind of it, there's a bit of luck to it i think because um, i really like the way that that system worked out um I think maybe the the only skill part came from my design desire to not use action checklists. I I generally do not like lists of actions. I like to incorporate those lists into the the organic space of the game. Like in worker placement, worker placement is essentially a list of actions, but it's within a physical space showing you, hey, these are your choices. And so I wanted that inside too. And so, side, like you your mat is essentially an action checklist, but in a very physical space, and there's a lot going on on those mats. Um, but early on, it was uh, there was a little bit of that. The actions were, were conveyed on the mat, but it was more of an upgrade system, where you would have these actions on the mat and you would, you would acquire cards. The game was a lot more card-driven early on. You would acquire these cards that don't exist in any form in the game now, and you would slide them under the mat to make the action better. So it would it would make the benefit better or the, or the cost cheaper. And so that was the – so the, the reason the mat is spaced out the way it is now is because each section is about the width of a card. So I needed a card to fit into that slot. But eventually I just got rid of the cards, but I, and I still liked the mat, and yeah. the mat just evolved. Really, it came from many, many prototypes and play tests. Like It's not something I just thought of. It, yeah. it, it evolved over time.
1: Where did the idea come from? Because what I love about the mat is you do one action, and it makes something – cheaper, it makes something else better. Yeah. Like you, The game has this really cool arc where everything's getting cheaper and easier and better and, and upgrades cool. and all that through that mat system and the actions you take on that. And I don't yeah. know of any other game that's done that in that way. So where did that idea come from? That Just more of the, the playtesting?
0: That actually was heavily inspired by Terra Mystica. Okay. Have you played Terra
1: Mystica? I have not. I've seen it. And, you know know what it is and haven't, haven't played it.
0: It's a, it's a great game. And one of the things about Terra Mystica that I love is that it's a very rewarding game. And that whenever you do something, you're often like taking buildings off a mat. It's, the mats look kind of similar, but in of it's all buildings on the mat. And you, you build one and you put it on the board. And when you do so, you're typically upgrading a building that was on the board. And you have to pull it back onto your mat. Um, but it ends up feeling like a double reward. Because you're putting a better building on the board. Um, and con- controlling that space better than before. And the reward that you're getting from your mat. There's income in Termisca, so you're getting a better income. You're you're also getting a better reward that way. So I wanted to capture that double reward system inside. I wanted everything you do to reward you ideally two times, if not more. I like that when I play games, I like to be rewarded. I don't I don't want to be punished when I play a game. Yeah. I I want to be rewarded.
1: Absolutely. Especially for, you know, playing things at the right time and, and yeah. strategizing as opposed to just being a random oh oh right. you happen to draw the good event card. Well, no, it's right. I took these actions at the right times, and now I'm being doubly rewarded for it. Uh, right, and it helps, it helps players want to play again and again and again. Yeah. So, what other what other games kind of influenced Scythe? You just mentioned mentioned Terra Mystica. You mentioned Dead of Winter earlier. What other were there any other games that you kind of took inspiration from?
0: Yeah, Kemet is the other big one. Have mm. you played Kemet? Yeah, yeah. So Kemet, the, Kemet is much more, so when people come to me and say, hey, I wish there was more combat inside, I usually say, go play Kemet, because <laughs> Kemet is a fantastic combat game, <laughs> right. but it still has a lot of upgrades. It has the engine building feel of Scythe. Yeah. But in Kemet, the, there are two things that I drew from it. One is the, the tunnel system inside is inspired by the monolith system, or the obelisk system yep. in, um, in Kemet. Basically, it lets you jump across the board pretty easily. Right. Um, the board scales well because of it. Uh, the other part is that Kemet, um, it, it kind of encourages players to attack, much more so inside, but it, it gives you the freedom to attack uh, because you don't lose that much when you lose a battle. Like Sure, you lose the space that you wanted, and maybe some units die, but it doesn't really feel like they die. It's really easy to get them back. Um, and so I wanted that feel inside where if you want to have that interaction with other players but you fail at it, you don't do it well, or maybe you're not set up, you haven't set yourself up to do well, you don't lose that much by losing. You just retreat back to your home base, and then it takes a few turns to get back out there. Um, that, was, that was a big takeaway from Kemet.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Were you also uh, inspired by Euphoria a little bit? Because I know there's the star system in Euphoria, the star system oh, yeah. in, in Scythe. Is that is that, I mean, is that obviously on your mind, because you designed both games, but right. was that intentional, or did it just kind of happen that way?
0: Yeah, so with Euphoria like uh the end game is triggered and the winner is determined by whoever places the tenth star. Mm-hmm. Which I liken for various reasons, but I got some complaints about it for people who said it felt too much like a race game. And I didn't design it to be a race game. That's just kind of what it is though. You're you're racing to get out the 10th star. And so I wanted to pull that that organic end game trigger into scythe. Um when you place the sixth star the game ends. But uh, I wanted something to happen after that. I, I didn't want the the winner to be necessarily determined by who plays the six star. I wanted there to be some sort of some more rewards to happen after that with the end game scoring. So yeah, it was the kind of the natural the evolution of Euph- the euphoria star system into a more Euroish end game scoring mechanism.
1: Yeah, it's really cool to see how designers will will take one mechanic. And yeah. Over the course of 10 years or however long, you know, and it evolves and it changes and becomes better and all that. And, and that's just kind of what, what happened with the star system inside. Of it. Now, yeah. going, going back to the final scoring, so most games all right, whoever places the final whatever that causes the end game to trigger, but then everybody yeah. else gets another turn but not in Scythe. In Scythe, that's it. The game's over count up points. So what, what caused that decision? Because some players aren't gonna get as many turns as other players, and I'm sure that can be frustrating sometimes, but what went into that decision?
0: Yeah, uh, I mean, we play tested a few different ideas with that, but it, it really came down to, you in, in a game like this where there are no rounds, where you, it's up to the players to end the game, you have to give players a really good reason to actually end the game. Otherwise, they can just drag it on. Right. And so um, we found that if we gave players, if if I end the game, but other players can still take turns, that it really disincentivizes me from ending the game because other players could do things that affect me afterward. Like if I make a big move maybe to the factory and then someone else can do something after that, I may not make that big move. I'll just do something else and wait a little bit. And then everyone ends up waiting a little bit and the game drags on. But I'm glad you mentioned that, Gabe. You get get a little bit of a scoop here because... That, this is going to be half of the new expansion. There's a, a new series of endgame triggers that I've designed. And so every time you play Scythe with this expansion, you'll have a different endgame trigger um, and different things that happen at the end. And you're fully aware of it during the game. Um, but I'm I'm really excited about it because it, the endgame, you know, people often remember the end of a game. And so I'm trying to make that end of the game even more memorable instead of just coming to a hard stop.
1: Yeah. Now is this something where people are going to choose the end game uh, triggers or or that just there's six of them and then if one of them happens it ends the game or how does it work?
0: It uh, well, we're still testing it. The way it works right now is that uh one is randomly selected at the beginning of the game and that that's just the end game trigger for the game. Everyone's aware of it. Everyone knows what it is and you really don't have to pay that much attention to it for many of them until you get close to the end. Gotcha. Um, and so there's, there's just one, but what I think what people might do is if they, if they find one they really like that feels right for their group, they might just stick with that one and just not randomize it, just always use that end game trigger.
1: Right. No, that's really cool. It's good to have that, that option. Uh, let's yeah. talk about the battle system. So the battle's not, you yeah. know, at the forefront inside, but it is there. It's how you can get a couple of stars, uh, you know, that you can kind of move towards the end game. But it's right. it's deterministic. There's no dice. You know, it's it's based on resources and bluffing, and it's a really cool system. I think I think Dune used something somewhere. I don't know if you took yeah. inspiration from that. Um, yeah. But let's let's talk through through that part of the game.
0: Combat. What have you ever designed a game with combat? I'm curious.
1: Yeah, but it's always dice. Um, actually, oh, okay. I tried to design a game like Kimmet that had deterministic combat. And I uh-huh. gave up. I was like, this is not very good. And so, cause it's hard, man. It's super hard to, dice is just so much easier. Just to say, right. throw the dice, see what happens. Here's some upgrades, here's some bonuses, whatever. It's just so much easier than doing yeah. this deterministic. So I've got mad respect for you for for doing it the way you've done it. Uh, cause it works really, really well.
0: I asked because I, I wanted to see if you could relate to how hard it is yeah. to design that system. It's, it's really hard. It was yeah. by far the hardest thing to design inside. And I went through more iterations. I went through like 30 different iterations uh-huh um many of which were like vastly different because there were a lot of dice at the beginning and i moved more and more away from dice and after the point where i got rid of the dice and i had this the current system there was still a lot of little things like the uh, if you uh if you lose a battle but you put up at least a little bit of a fight you get to draw a combat card that little touch makes a big difference in combat because I was trying to find a way to encourage players to actually engage in combat, actually attack. And so attackers have the advantage. Attackers break ties inside. But at the same time, I wanted to give players a reason not to just automatically back down and spend zero power if they thought they were going to lose. I wanted to always give players a little bit of hope that they could win the battle. And so that came through the, uh, the combat cards that had a little variability to it.
1: Yeah, and with a game like Scythe, it's so good that it doesn't have dice, because Um, you know just the choices that you have to make. Because you're having to look at your resources, you're looking at your power, all these things. You're saying, okay, how much do I want to bet on this? Because I'm going to lose it, you know. And do I want to make sure I win, or do I want to just try to barely win? He's only got this many, so he can only go this far. But is he going to bet all of it? And so it creates this really cool meta game, this bluffing game that you can't get with dice. I mean, dice just doesn't. It's random, It ha- what happens, happens. Whereas this, it gives you so much choice and it just makes the game so much more rich uh, because of it. So I, I think that's, th- the system you created is perfect for that game. Like I don't know of any way it could have been better. I think dice would have totally thrown off the feeling of the game. It would have made it, you know, yeah. it, Euro games with a lot of dice, uh, it's, it's, there's, it just doesn't work that well usually yeah. unless you do it really, really well. Um, and yeah, I think so I, the system that you, you created is Really good. Now, did you did you take it from Dune? Did you is that where the idea came from? That was definitely a big inspiration. Yeah, or yeah. I hadn't played Dune,
0: but Rex. It came, yeah. came from from Rex, right. uh, which is you know the, the newer version of Dune. Right. Uh, definitely had had a big influence on it. Yeah, the idea that you have a, a a dial and you're you're hiding some information behind that dial. Yeah. Gotcha.
1: Now, start to finish, how long did the game take from uh, from our initial idea, initial email to the artist to Kickstarter launch? How long was yeah. that process?
0: It was about uh fourteen months wow. of almost nonstop working on it. Like that was it was a forty pretty much a forty hour a week job just to focus on scythe for that time. Yeah. because um, it went it went through a lot to get to where, where it was before the Kickstarter project.
1: Gotcha. So so for anybody listening, the number six game in the world right now, it's not overnight success. It's so easy to look at people <laughs> and go, Oh wow, he came out of nowhere. This company came out of nowhere, His game. Yeah. Fourteen months of development, play testing decisions being made, things being cut and added and changed. Over a year is what it took. And then even longer after that with the Kickstarter and, and the process that comes after Kickstarter, all that. So there is no such thing as overnight success in board games. It's just that's ridiculous. Uh, and, and that <laughs> speaks speaks to that. How much of that time was spent playtesting?
0: The first few months were, were a lot of brainstorming. So very little playtesting during that time. But uh, I would say by January of... Um, Whatever year it was, by 2014, 2015. By January, we were we were doing weekly, at least weekly, play tests um, locally, um, and that that went on for about five months. And then the blind play testing—I did three waves of blind play testing that lasted three months, about 750 blind play test sessions during that time. And then after that, there was the solo development of the game by uh, uh, one of my my coworkers, Morton. And that, took, that was another 250 play tests. It took about another month to do the, the solo part.
1: Wow. Yeah, so yeah. a lot, a lot of work. A lot of people coming alongside and helping with the testing. What, yeah. you know, what are some of the big things the testing showed you or that, that changed the game?
0: One of the, the big things, because I, it's, it's, almost, it's a tough question to answer because there, that, play, that blind plate testing was uh, so incredibly helpful. A lot of it was data-driven, like I would just have people input the scores and like the faction they used in the player mat, but a lot of it was anecdotal. We had a very active forum of people just sharing their reactions to certain mechanisms. Okay, so one actually one big thing was that going into the first wave, I hadn't designed the faction abilities yet. Each faction had different mech abilities, but not unique faction abilities. Um, and at the time, I was kind of on the fence as to whether or not to make them, because I, I kind of wanted... I wanted players to choose their own path and not have to do the thing that their ability told them to do, and I also wanted to make sure that I had the asymmetry of the, the other asymmetry down and and balanced before I put in those abilities. So for the first entire wave of blind playtesting, there were no faction abilities. They were added maybe at the end of the first wave and the and the beginning of the second wave.
1: Wow, very cool, man. So that's a huge
0: thing. Yeah, yeah
1: absolutely. Uh, what what did you learn in creating this game that you're going to be able to take forward? Into your next game or games down the road,
0: man, a, a, a ton. I mean, I, I need something specific here for your for your podcast, though, don't I? Well, I mean, just in
1: uh, I mean, I think playtesting the the process you went through for this game. I mean, you take yeah. that into the next game, you're you're going to create a great game. You know, that's that's something I'm uh, learning right now is is there is no shortage of there's no number you can put on a number of playtests to say okay we're good. You know, right. just keep doing it, keep grinding, keep grinding, and getting more data and more more feedback that's one big thing
0: that's, that's a huge part of it yeah and i i also learned how how much those play testers impact the rules you talked earlier about how the rule book that i think it, it is pretty solid people still have questions and whatnot but there would be a ton more questions if those play testers hadn't asked all the questions they did during the process because yeah. every time they asked a question that i knew in my head was in the rules was the signal to me that I hadn't conveyed it properly in the rules, or I hadn't put it in the right place in the rules? Right. And so we're talking hundreds, maybe thousands of questions that that I would I would kind of process and then figure out how to better answer them in the rules. And a lot of little edge cases too. I, the movement page in, inside the rule book is is a little overwhelming because it's a full page of like how to move stuff. Um, and that page could have been condensed down to like a paragraph, but there are a lot of little edge cases that people need to need to know about that really come up, but they're there. And so all those, those play tests came through and, and made sure that all those edge cases are covered.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and with creating rules. It's easy to get so close to it that you don't see the problems with it. You know, yeah. just like any book or anything you're writing, if you get so close and you skip over the errors or you don't think there, think through the edge cases or anything like that. And I, I've been, I was play testing a, a game the other day with a friend and, um uh, he came up with some questions. I was like, How in the world did you come up what? Like, what are you talking about? But then yeah. looking back at the game is like, okay, I can see how somebody would make that connection and I need to address that just with one little sentence that just says, You can't do that. You know, right. because people are gonna come up with these scenarios and go, well, well, can I do this? Well, the rules don't say I can't. So I must be able to, and it breaks the game. <laughs> you know? And so just going through the feedback, you know, something JR Honeycut. Uh, one of our first episodes talked about was the day a game is released, it will be played more times than it ever was in playtesting. And yeah. so when you take, you know, when one person in hundreds of playtest has a problem, well, that means that's going to grow exponentially when the game right. is actually released and thousands, hopefully thousands of people get to play it. And so yeah. taking all that information under consideration and going, okay, this was one out of a hundred people but that's right. gonna that's gonna scale, and so there's gonna be a lot more people that had the same issue, uh, more than likely, and just taking that under consideration.
0: So that's great feedback from from you and Jr. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that.
1: Cool, man. Uh, well, anything else to add on the the scythe unboxing or, or making of or how it all came to be?
0: I think we've covered the, the big hits, the big changes that throughout the 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 process, the playtesting. Um. Actually, we, we barely touched upon it, but the, the solo part of it, Yeah. I, I don't play games solo. Um, but I, I have realized through Morton and through what he's done with our games, how big the audience is for solo games, the ability to play games solo. So I really, especially through Scythe, I, I have a new appreciation for, um, for getting that solo variant and a really good, not like a little paragraph in the rules, but actually components that contribute to that experience. Um, to put in, putting that into the game. It's not something I designed. It's not something I really even fully understand. I could not teach the Automa version of the game, but uh, but that it's there, I think, has, has opened the game up to a lot of people who, who only play games solo.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And... and- being able to have your game playable in a solo way, in a way that's meaningful, like you're saying, right. more than just oh, if you want to and you're lonely, I guess you could play <laughs> it by yourself, you know. But actually having a mode where it's it, this is for solo players, it opens up the game up to so many more people who yeah. who maybe don't have a regular game night or regular game group, or maybe their game group hates games that are like Scythe, you know, maybe they right. just don't want to play them. And so yeah. having that opportunity just expands your reach so much more. And I think about games like Time Stories. That don't mm-hmm. work well with two players, and definitely don't work with one player. You know, yeah. that a lot of people are missing out on because they they the games just don't work for for a solo player or just one or two. Um, yeah, and that's yeah, that's a lot of great advice there, if, if, especially if you can find a guy like you've got that loves it right. and can come up with the rules and do it in a really good way. And and we talked about outsourcing in a in a different episode, yeah. but if you can yeah. outsource that and find somebody who is passionate about it and does a good job, that is a huge that's a that's a gold mine uh, for a game yeah. to have.
0: Absolutely. Yeah
1: well cool man well, I really appreciate you coming on the show again I uh, love having you uh, it's always great to talk to you uh, we're, we're going to go into a a bonus round we're going to be talking about rule book uh, designing a rule book you know Jamie's advice and tips on putting together a good rule book that makes sense it's clear that also looks good I think side is one of the, the best looking rule books that I've seen the graphic design the art the way it's laid out everything's wonderful uh, about it so I think Jamie's a, a pretty good little expert on that topic. So we're going to do that in the bonus round. So we'll see you at uh, boardgamedesignlab.com if you want to check that out. But Jamie, really appreciate your time and I look forward to seeing you again. Awesome.
0: Sounds good. Cool, man.
1: Thanks for listening. Find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com.
0: And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?